0: um i don't actually know how to start this one because it's a bit different Hello. <laughs> but um yeah welcome back to the culture cast uh podcast this is going to be a bit of a different episode as we're going to be talking about the farmers issue which is happening in india at the moment uh, the farmers protest um and because it's such a big topic i've enlisted the help of my two amazing guests uh first is uh returning onto the podcast and professional boxer uh mr Inderbasi. how are you doing
1: I'm doing well, thank you, my brother. I'm all good.
0: Good, good. And uh, secondly is Dr. (coughs) Sharandeep Singh of uh, Sikhs in Scotland. How are you doing? Good to be here. I'm doing very good. Good, good. Um, Sharandeep is actually a doctor from the NHS, uh, working in Glasgow. So just before we begin, I'd like to say a huge thank you to you and all the other frontline workers uh, who were smashing it during this pandemic. Um, It's very much appreciated. And a quick other caveat uh, is that We are not experts, it's a bit of a disclaimer here. We're very passionate about the subject. We have done our research uh, before recording this. However, we encourage everybody to do their own research, educate themselves and raise awareness on this issue. Um, Inder, do you want to start off with a bit of context of what's going on?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, You know, like you said, this is not your usual podcast, but it's it's very fitting right now because, you know, what's going on in India right now, and it's not just limited to India. We must we must realize, you know, the largest protest in the world. What started off in just in Punjab, you know, local local people getting together in their cities and towns now is um, all across India, and now is resonating throughout the world. So it's only right, you know, we have we 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 do this. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, just a few statistics here is that it's it's the largest protest in history, with over 250 million people actively protesting. And as you say, it's not just a Punjab issue or anything. It is affecting a lot of people in India because uh, 60% Definitely. of the 1.366 billion people in India work in the agricultural industry. So it does affect more than 800 million people. 800 million is more than the Mad. entire population, population of Europe. So it is it is a really um, big issue. Um, to, to sort of understand what's happening, uh, I think we need to understand what was happening beforehand before these bills got uh, put into place and um, so Sharandeep is it okay if you um, tell us about the the Mundi system and what was in place before the bills uh, are trying to change this?
2: Yeah sure um, so um, most of the kind of knowledge and information that um, I have kind of picked up you know pre uh, the farmers protest is just very much from you know being present on holidays uh to Punjab to India where you know majority of my family is involved in agriculture um so you know you know when we were going on holidays there you know we were living you know, on the, on the cool, as they say, which is a kind of farmhouse in the middle of the field. So this is something that, you know, we've been surrounded by ever since our childhood trips, but it's probably only recently with these protests and with these laws that I've really gone down and drilled into the kind of deeper technical aspects of how the farming infrastructure works. Um, And as you've rightly said, these are This is an industry upon which hundreds of millions of people's lives and livelihoods rest on. Um, So prior to um, the so-called reforms that have been introduced um, in the laws last year, um, the process by which uh, a farmer um, would be able to really get his income from his labor was through um, the Mundi system, which is a kind of localized and regulated and licensed markets and these are markets which are very very local Um, they're very very regionalized so they um, serve you know very discrete areas Um, and over time the uh, farmers you know get to know those agents who are working within those mondays those markets and the reason that they're licensed and regulated by the government firstly is just from a tax perspective, the government loves tax and they like to make their money somehow, and so they will regulate these environments so that they can get generate their state income out of it, but it's also to make sure that the standards are being met, so that the quality standards for food are being met, the storage standards for food are being met, um, and also that the you know, income standards to a certain extent for those farmers um, the money that is exchanging um is reaching the, the hard workers who have produced that food. I think the critical thing, that, which is possibly you know, a bit more unique to India, is that it's, despite being such a huge country, it is still very much a developing country. It's not quite there to the developed level. Um, you know, I think I've read articles that state that it's maybe you know 20 25 years behind where china is now so uh, from an economic growth perspective india still does lag behind in certain certain ways um and one of the ways in which it does is the poverty level and the population that um is below the poverty level and You know, we're familiar in this country, we have a welfare system, we have a free healthcare system, that kind of thing doesn't really exist within India, because they often can't afford it. But the one welfare system that they do have, which is very good, is supplied through something called the Food Corporation of India, which provides significantly subsidised essential food, so lentils, rice, grain, flour, um, and distributes it um, to hundreds of millions of people who live below the poverty line so within this uh, agricultural infrastructure the government is actually a key buyer Um, so the government is one of the biggest buyers of food through this mundi system so the government is not just some kind of external regulator they're one of the the big buyers um, of this food that's produce is that that is produced by the farmers Uh, and so the farmers they are also being supported by these major welfare schemes as well. Um, so the government is not neutral because you know it's, it's paying this money to those farmers. And a big chunk of the income that farmers make is through the Food Corporation of India scheme and the welfare scheme. So you can see actually how there is a slightly more um, interconnected web here. Um, and this is why the reforms that were introduced have really upended um, what has been a decade long system. And unfortunately, Modi's kind of MO seems to be to introduce uh, really, really significant reforms overnight. Demonetization comes to mind, where he just cancelled everyone's money overnight and decided to print a new currency and we remember yeah. the havoc that that caused and yeah. it seems that he very much tried to do the same thing here with the farmer uh, the farmer laws and the infrastructure um but this slightly more significant reform has come back to haunt him
0: yeah um i was actually in india when that uh, currency thing happened as well for a wedding in it was it was havoc. But just, just to go back to the, the farming situation. So uh, through the podcast, you might hear something called MSP, uh, which is minimum support price that we'll probably end up talking about a bit more. And this is basically um, what Sharon just said is the subsidies. So when a farmer goes to the Monday, um, uh, they'll sell their produce, uh, but they'll be guaranteed a certain uh, minimum price. And this is one of the things that I think the government want to reform um, in in the in the three laws, because uh, I was reading in, um, on an article uh, that basically the bigger farmers, um, obviously, because it's a, a higher scale, can get more profit. However, the biggest difference in subsidies in this case is that in India, there are a lot more farmers than, say, Western countries like Europe and America. Um, but they have like a ridiculously small amount of land uh, compared to uh, say America so uh, just to put this in context um, an Indian farmer on average owns around one hectare of land whereas in uh, in America this is around 444 acres of land so obviously the the contrast there's like mental but the bigger farmers obviously would earn a lot more money from taking their produce than the smaller farmers. Uh, but there are just a lot more smaller farmers, um, um, in India. And, and when we're talking about, uh, sort of income and poverty, um, we've, we've got a few statistics as well, uh, regarding like average incomes and things. If, if, uh, if, do you want to rattle some of these off?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, just a point that you made about the MSP. The MSP is a massive point. Um, it's a massive thing for a lot of farmers. You know, like you said, um, there are a lot of farm, lot more farmers, but they're all smaller farmers. They're smaller um size of land. And I was reading an article as well about a farm from Bihar where these laws were institutions in 2007. Um, 2006, I believe. 2006, yeah. And he said from every year, so after 2006, the farming went up for two, a year or two. And after that, it's coming down every single year the you know the the income um and he was saying this is a guy from Bihar who's from Bihar he's a farmer he said we what we do is because we're not guaranteed a minimum su- MSP a minimum support price we sell our our produce to Punjab so what they would do they'll have middlemen they'll have mid- and this is an illegal practice but he said we still earn more money so they'll have someone like me for example I'll say I'll take your produce whatever you've grown your know, 10 acres worth of onions, for example. I'll illegally take them to Punjab, and sell them to f- sell them for the MSP. And however, the farmer who who does that, so he has to pay for transportation costs, middleman's, so I'm the middleman, I'm gonna take a cut, you know, and all those things included, he still earns more money than what he would do if if he sold directly to um you know anybody else, for example, because he's not um, guaranteed MSP. And that that farmer there was he was crying, he was in tears. Um. And he was saying i have not that's my only option you know he goes india is a big country so he from him to go to Bihar, i went to Bihar, the there for him to go to their order to punjab just to get that minimum msp knowing it's illegal he's going to lose a lot of money to middlemen to um transportation costs he's still willing to do that because he knows he will get more money and this is going to be introduced all over india and it just it's going to kill all the farmers because like you said, if, if every farmer in India owned an average of 100 acres of land, it's no problem. I can afford to pay transportation costs. I can afford to get rid of it all to one big company. But the guy who only owns two acres of land, for example, he's going to struggle very badly. Um, but there's a lot of things that are wrong with it. You know, like if people say, oh, the agricultural farm was in decline and everything. Yeah, the agricultural market needs um, change. But the change cannot come around without exactly and without speaking to any organisation or body that represents farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, change is needed, but the way he's done and the process in which they brought the laws—I don't know if you've seen the video. Yeah, of, yeah. All those—I I, and it, it's crazy. You know, it's like something you wouldn't necessarily believe that's happening in twenty twenty-one in the world's largest democracy. And like I said the government is there to serve the people if the people aren't happy something has to be done it's just it's common it, it, it's its not you know it's gonna be india's not a dictatorship it's the world's largest democracy um and there's there's loads of things you know like one of the statistics that Bihar has the lowest state average you know in in the notes it says it got rid of it in 2006 so we don't have to say Bihar is projected to do this or the introduction of MSP, we believe is going to do this yeah. because that's that's incorrect. We we can see, we can look at numbers. We can look at numbers and we can and numbers don't lie. We don't have to project, you know, I believe that this this these new laws are gonna be in favor of the farmers. I, I believe that this is gonna happen, or according to statistics, we have to look at these statistics and say this is um this is what's happened and this is what will happen to the rest of the farmers. But for some reason Mr Modi doesn't want to listen
2: yeah it's yeah. interesting because we're talking about the the minimum support price so you reference the um, comparison between the different states within India and the most prominent example being Bihar which has already over the past decade or so have been you know implementing this system and the data is very very clear in terms of um, income levels within those states um, and also you know the anecdotes like you shared of how the farmers you know use the system or the loopholes in the system in order to try and you know um overcome those barriers um but if you look at it on even a global level um you know over the past uh uh you know few years we in britain have been consumed by brexit and the eu and one of the biggest policies um within the eu budget was something called the common agricultural policy um and that was actually huge huge significant portion of the annual eu budget specifically related to farming and farmers um, and what that was all about was within the uh you know the the trade zone of the eu um they made sure that they would be safeguarding the incomes of the different farmers um within the within the eu um to make sure that there was that income stability to make sure that there was price stability and You know, it's it's quite clear, you know, from our own family, uh, my own family in India, that the farmers there don't regard the pre-existing system as perfect. They are not anti-reform. They are not stuck in the past, Um, but their major objection is that these laws were not passed with their consultation, and it wasn't done within the interests um, of what they needed. And we've been talking about the minimum support price within India, and I was actually quite surprised to learn recently that there's actually no legal basis for the minimum support price it's not actually written into law specifically um, and even within these new laws um, but the what the mundi system guaranteed because the agents in the mundi had to get a license from the government to operate one of the conditions of that license um, would be to make sure that the mundi would be purchasing at the minimum support price. So although the law doesn't guarantee it, their license depends on it. So they had to make sure that they, at least in the public setting, um, were making sure that their transactions were going based on that MSP. And the minimum support price um, is, a very, very specific number um, and it's calculated twice a year by the central government. And what they do is they look at all the input costs for farming. So they'll look at the fuel, the equipment required, they'll look at the fertilizers needed, they'll look at the seed costs. um, They'll also look at how much it costs for labor. um, And they'll also look at um, what they call the, um, the C2 costs, which is the, Unaccounted for work that gets taken place when the agricultural economy, and we know actually that families end up bearing the burden. Um, so if you know a farmer has a field within that field, his wife will be doing something, his son will be doing something, his daughter will be doing something. He doesn't necessarily pay them a wage. But his income needs to be able to support that and so twice a year what they do is they come up with a formula. um, and calculate all those uh, input costs all those labor costs and they publish that um, minimum support price. And you can see then how comprehensive that MSP is because it does cover all the costs associated with farming and it makes sure that the farmer is able to not a not make a loss. Um, and also is able to generate a profit so that they can you know grow and and take on extra burdens or extra costs as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it, so it is basically a form of a subsidy, which is going back to what you were saying before about the European Union. We uh, they have cap uh, in place, and then America also has. Um, I'm pretty sure they had historic numbers of um, subsidies within the past couple of years. They uh, gave $28 billion in 2018 to 2020 to their farmers as, as a former subsidy, which means the average American farmer got around 100,000 pounds per year. And as we were going into um, incomes beforehand, just to rattle off these numbers fairly quickly, uh, I'm gonna say them in rupees and then I'll put them into pounds just so that those that are in like the UK, like us, uh, can sort of fathom how much of the, um, how much, how little this money is, because as you mentioned before, like it is a, it is like a poverty stricken sort of um, uh, ballpark numbers these are. So the average income of an Indian farmer uh, is roughly uh, 77,124 rupees per year, which is around 770 pounds a year, which is again, nuts. And Punjab, as we already mentioned, is the highest average state uh, because they, they still have the Mundi system in place, which is um, two two hundred and 216,708 rupees per year, which is roughly 2,170 pounds per year. Bihar, as we mentioned, has the lowest state average, which is only 42,684 rupees per year, and that is equivalent to 426 pound and 90 pence. And as Inder already mentioned, they got rid of the uh monday system in 2006 and obviously punjab still has it and there's there's a significant uh difference there these numbers were um from india today and the business standard for for numbers from 2019 so this is before the bills were in place which is um which is important to note because it sort of uh tells paints the picture of the landscape beforehand uh, and as we were speaking about america their average income is around eighty three thousand dollars per year so there's a fast difference there and we're not saying that the monday system is perfect because obviously their numbers as a sort of paint the picture that it's still relatively little amounts of money and this has had an impact also on suicide rates Uh, india's got one of the highest suicide rates in the world for farmers with in 2019 uh um farmers or farm laborers committed suicide so it's it's not a perfect picture they did need support in the reforms but unfortunately it's went the the other way with the three bills that have been passed um so i think now was probably the better, we've, we've painted the picture of what was happening before these bills got passed i think we should probably talk about the the three bills themselves so um sean if do you want to do you want to talk about these bills
2: yeah i so, um it's kind of around about this uh Uh, late summer time last year um i believe that there was uh, the passing of these bills and they're actually split up into three bills um so there's there's one called the farmers produce trade and commerce bill the farmers agreement on price assurance and farm services bill and the third one is the essential commodities bill and each of these laws deregulate certain aspects of the farming infrastructure and the farming landscape within India, and um, so that it is a comprehensive wholesale gut out of how farmers work in the system that they currently know about. And it's interesting because these there's different ways that legislation can be passed. And one of the things that was actually the the tactics used by the Modi government was to pass these bills as ordinances, um, which changes the way in which you have to, there's legal duties that the government has to fulfill to pass a law. And some of those things involve a period of consultation. Some of them involve making sure that um, committees of the parliament get to scrutinize the bill and bring amendments to those bills um, and none of those steps were taken place because they used something called an ordinance and an ordinance is a tool that the government has to pass a law in an emergency situation so we know that for example you know we've all been dealing with the covid pandemic the government has been you know um, extending its powers significantly, for example, making sure that we have a lockdown, making sure that businesses get supported, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the ordinance tool for a government is to be used in an emergency situation, in a fast-paced situation, um, and it's there to be used as kind of a, a you know um, a tool that is a temporary measure to deal with something unexpected. Now, farming in India is not something new farming reform has not been uh, discussed just overnight farmers have been discussing this for decades during the british era for example during the post-independence period after the so-called green revolution um so this is not something that was an emergency this was not something that suddenly needed to happen but they used that tool the ordinance tool and to evade that scrutiny Um, And the most uh, egregious example of of their tactics was the day that they passed the vote in Parliament itself. Um, And so when in a parliamentary system, every member of Parliament gets to cast a vote, it's not just the government that gets to say, every individual MP needs to cast their vote for a law. And What they do is when there's a division in the Parliament where there's not a full agreement, then they would walk through a lobby or they might press a button, for example, in an L Electronic system so that they can all cast a vote. But what they used, or the the Speaker of the House of Parliament at that time, he passed these bills on what is called a vita voce vote, which is a voice vote, where he said all those in favour of the vote say aye, all those in favour of the vote say no. And based on his hearing, he decided that the yes vote was louder than the no vote, and therefore these laws were passed, which affect 800 million people. So it seems slightly farcical, it seems slightly comical that in, you know, what is a mature parliament, 60, 70 years old, that something like this could happen, but it's just a series of steps that they've taken that really do seed this doubts in our mind of what their intentions actually were.
0: Yeah, um, uh, I just want to say that the sort of mentioned this beforehand as well. There are videos of that occasion that you've just mentioned uh, of the of the vocal vote that are plastered online. So if anybody hasn't seen that, uh, definitely do watch it because it is. um. I would say it was comical if the if the result wasn't so drastic. Do you know what I mean? Like in any other circumstance, you would look and think that's not how this should work and you would sort of laugh at it. But because it has resulted in what has happened, um, it's you can't even say it's comical. Do you know what I mean it's just, it's it's just ridiculous, really? Um in the do you wanna sort of so the, the impact of these builds has sort of happened and then the farmers uh are retaliating against these builds because they haven't been consulted uh con consultated that's not a word uh, consulted. consulted oh my god english going out the window yeah uh, consulted um yeah so they haven't been consulted and they, they want uh these bills to be repealed so what is your like uh knowledge of sort of what the farmers want
1: yeah so well again i think they want first and foremost and something that all farmers seem to be adamant on is they want these three laws repealed you know they don't want them put on hold they don't want anything to do with these three laws and that means that they want them repealed. So that is something the farmers want. Um you know there was a uh, something today where Modi said let's keep these three laws for the time being let's see how they work and you know in a year's time or X amount of months' time we'll we'll see how they look see how they're going and, and if if needed we'll change them and, and everything. But like I said the farmers in India um and like i said earlier they're not they're limited to Punjab it's not just you know the four four walls of Punjab, so to speak. It's all of India. They want the f- um, the three laws repealed, um, and so I think the government has to respect that. The government have have a duty to respect what the farmers want. Like I said, at the end of the day, they're the ones working in the field in the rain, in the sun, in the in the snow, and you know, and like we know, you know, um, farming is not an easy industry to go in. Um, the suicide that is involved and you know the, the things in general you know like in all fields of agriculture a bit more they deserve to be listened to um so I think yeah like I said whatever the laws are whatever they state the first thing that 90% of farmers want is the laws to, to be repealed and they're not going to go as they've said you know they, they
2: they've said you know we're not going to go back home until these laws are are, are taken back It's a very important principle within democracy that, you know, you don't make laws about something or someone without consulting the people that are affected by those issues. That is the key feature of a democracy. You know, there are other ways countries govern themselves, you have monarchies, you have dictatorships, you have communist countries, socialist countries, etc. But the key feature of a democracy is a law or a bill that's passed is done with the consultation of the people itself. The it's people, not done yeah. by the order of some you know, preordained you know, um, leader or some secret committee. Um, yeah. That's just not the way. And, and the constitution of India itself, which uh, the BJP in particular, and some of the right-wing people, you know, they love to talk about the constitution of India, but they're very quick to um, ignore it or avoid certain conditions when it suits them um and going back to the bills itself you know we've kind of talked a little bit about the mondays i think it'd be useful to just discuss some of the details and and the consequences of the three separate bills and what each of them does so there's um the commodities bill for example is uh you know food oh, yeah, yeah, poverty yeah. is very very scarce you know and within india you know people are extremely malnourished Um, you know a lot of people don't even get three square meals a day so what the the previous commodities bills were there to make sure that food is affordable that you know things can't just suddenly you know for example we are going out to fill up our car with petrol you don't know what the price of petrol is going to be until you get to the the petrol station Mm-hmm. You know, one day it could be one pound, the other day it could be one pound ten, the other day it could be one pound twenty, the other day it could be one pound thirty. It's totally unpredictable, right? But that's the system that we, that the way oil is treated. Oil is not food, though. You know, you cannot expect, you know, onions, uh, core vegetables, core lentils every day to be changing prices in a country where there's so much poverty already. Those people need. They need stability, they need continuity, they need to make sure that there's not profiteering or excessive profiteering being done on essential items like food. Now, what the um, the new bill that Modi's passed on commodities has done is he's allowed certain freedoms for companies. So what they can do is they can now buy in bulk. You know, they can buy cereals, pulses, vegetables. They can buy it in bulk and they can store it. They can store it in a warehouse for however long they want. And with modern technology, we have you know temperature controlled fridges, temperature controlled freezers. You can keep these items for months, if not years on end. And what that does is if those companies start to hoard that food within their warehouses, there's less food to go around, the prices go up because well, there's more people competing for that food if they want the food to go cheaper, if they've stored all that food, all of a sudden what they need to do is just release all that stock that they've got onto the market and then the prices collapse. So this power that they're handing over to companies is really, really um, dangerous for the ordinary Indian consumer. Um, And their uh, security of food supply is really, really being threatened. Um, And that is a major, major change um, one of the other bills, the agreement on price assurance and farm services, what that does is it allows a company to directly go to a farmer and set a contract with him to say that you need to, you know, we'll enter into a contract with you, you supply us X produce of X quality um, and we'll collect it at an next date. But what the contract farming does is it essentially makes the farmer an employee of that company because he's doing work for them based on that contract, but it doesn't give him any of the protections of an employee. You know, when we have our jobs, we have sick leave, we have you know certain employment rights, we have a guaranteed wage system, all this kind of stuff. But what the contract farming does is it makes him an employee but it doesn't give him any of the protections it's sort of
0: similar like how uber got into disputes over their taxi drivers just to put it into sort of context in in a western sort of setting just so other people can relate to it um is is like uber has this problem like most of these delivery apps have this problem where you are basically self-employed but you're also an employee at the same time um sorry to interrupt there but it was just like sort of to put it into context for western
2: countries yeah absolutely and you know over the last 10 years since the financial crisis we have seen within western uh, economies and western countries the security of a job has just evaporated you know as a young person i'm very very fortunate you know within my profession but i know so many of my peers that you know back in the 50s 60s 70s when you got a job with a company you know you were set you know you had that security of that job and you knew that the company was going to look after you as you, your life went on, as your family grew up, you got a house, you needed to pay for your kid's education, your job and your salary would go up in line with that. But what we have seen is that, for example, as you've given, you know, the, um, the gig economy jobs, which like you, the Uber and the Deliveroo's and the Amazons, what they have done is they have essentially, um, you know, uh, taken away all of those uh, responsibilities that they have as an employer but they still get to get all the benefits and all the profit and all the money uh, from that and that's one of the things that the farmers are very very concerned about when it comes to so-called contract farming is that they don't want that relationship because we've already pointed out majority of farmers within India have maybe about five acres of land um, and they don't have the influence they don't have the bargaining power when they're sitting in front of a company a big company you know um, a multinational food corporation they don't have the power and the say to actually make that company do what's in their interests Um, and that's a really really big change and the third bill which is related to the mundi system that we talked about um, so the mundi system is that local Buyer, you know the farmer has a relationship with them. One of the things that I was really interested to learn about from my family, you know, I asked them. I, I'd never heard of the Mundi before. I, I used to hear people in the house talking about it, being like, "Oh, Mundi no jaraya," you know, or we need to, you know, we need to take our produce to the Mundi. And I was like, "What is where is Mundi?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> is it a, is it a town? Is it a village? <laughs> I didn't realize that it was an actual marketplace. Um, so this, the Mundi system is actually a very, very integrated part of the economy of the agricultural life there. Um, and I was asking, you know, I was asking my my uncles, you know, what is their perception of the Mundi system? And they were like, you know, it's it's got its benefits and it's got its downsides. But there are certain things that, you know, the Mundi system does have its advantages on. And it also affects not just the economic life, of uh, farmers, but it also affects the social life of farmers. So one of the examples that was given to me was that within the Mundi system, once they become uh, a regular participant in that market they then get the um what they call the credit lines issued to them so the agents that are buying their stock they have that reliability and and that relationship with them so when there's a big event coming up for example um you know a wedding uh they need to buy a new car or a new tractor um if they have to pay certain you know uh fees or if they've got family maybe going abroad a big lump sum cost that's coming up um, and say that's, you know, most of the time the harvests are April time and November time, and that's when they get their money. If this cost comes up, say in February, and we know that most, most Indian weddings happen in February time, that's major wedding season. So what th- that farmer can do is he can go to the Mundi, speak to the Monday agent, say you know, my son or daughter is getting married in February. And, you know, can I get an advance on, you know, my stock, which I'll be bringing to you in April or May? And because they have that local connection, they have that local relationship with that agent, they have that ability to take advantage of that. And if a farmer is in a contract with a major company, they're not going to be able to say, oh, my daughter's getting married, you know, can I get, you know, if there's this multi-billion pound company that has These contracts with them, they're not going to get that flexibility. And it was really interesting to hear that example because it just goes to show how embedded the Mundi system is, not just in the economic life of uh, Punjab and India, but also the social fabric of these people's lives.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. It's like again, example over here is that you wouldn't ask your employee, uh, employer, your boss, like, oh. I can have a car because I'm getting married next year or something. But if you do have that relationship and um, and it is so much in the lifestyle there, then it's a completely different ballgame. That's why like, I'm trying to use as many examples as the West as possible, but there's some things that you just can't really relate to, can you? <laughs> Because over here is a complete different system. Um, just to make it easier for people to understand who might not uh, be fully embedded into, into the in- Indian culture. Um, right, so these three bills have been passed and then the the protest wasn't it's not like the bills were passed one day and then the next day everybody's just rocked up on the borders of Delhi that's that's obviously it's like a slow progression that's got there was it was very much just people being vocal at first and then like Mm. slowly slowly escalating to this point um we should we should say that we've already mentioned it a few times like alluded to it but the farmers basically are opposing these laws because they feel like they'll be at the mercy of big corporations their minimum spend Uh, uh, minimum support price sorry, uh, will be out of the window and then they won't even have any um, leverage or anything to negotiate with big companies. Because as I say, in the Western countries, there is still um, like the the way that CAP works is that any unsold produce, the government sort of buys off the farmer. That's how like it works in the European Union. So there's still sort of like a fallback. Uh, If you get rid of the CAP system, uh, the MSP, sorry, in India, then they probably think that the corporations will just set any price and they'll be forced to um take it because there's going to be no other buyers uh leaving them at the mercy of corporations and maybe even taking a loss further down the line maybe having to sell their land so on and so forth
1: but yeah just just sorry just an, it's not a maybe though it, it is happening mm-hmm. it's happening in Baha you know yeah. like I said earlier we can't just you know it's not just a case of it could happen or it, it may it may happen yeah. it's happening and we 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 have Legit examples to look at it from, um but yes, yeah, right. Just just a quick point that people seem to forget sometimes that it's not a case of if if the laws are introduced and this is going to happen, it could happen, it's happening. So we only yeah. have to just you know you look over at hard for example. We keep using hard but that's an, a very fresh, very live, very real example.
0: Well, it's a case study to look back at uh, a exactly. back on. Do you I mean like? um uh, definitely so when when the protest started what were the initial steps that were taken by farmers and and then how did it um escalate to the point where it became one of the largest protests in the
1: world i mean it just like i said it was on seat channel it was on just people getting together in a local town, in the local um you know for example a local um district or you know singers and you know those kind of people those in the public eye were just getting together people loads of people getting together protesting these laws and I'm not gonna lie, I didn't pay too much attention to it at the beginning. No, I, I, I knew what it was and I knew they were protesting, but like I said, I just sort of dismissed it. There's always protests going on and, you know, Punjab and India more and more than ever, there always seemed to be some sort of problem.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
1: I didn't pay too much attention, but as time went on and we didn't understand, or sorry, I didn't appreciate the severity of these laws. You know, I might have overlooked them myself. Um, and the more kind of it, it was on the media and then the, the the changing point for me was when they decided to go to Delhi. um yeah. you know so they've left their homes now they come to a point when they thought you know what no one's listening to us people myself included are, are not taking us seriously um they moved to Delhi, and when they moved to Dili and I, don't, I still I don't think the average person understands how big of a thing this is you know like you said earlier on farming is not it's not, as much as it's a job, it's not like a normal job. It's not like you go to work, you go, you're a teacher, for example, or you work, um, you know, in, or you're a professional boxer like myself. It's Farming is culture, it's history. It's, it's much more, it means a lot more to a farmer than someone like me can ever imagine. Um, and I think a, a key point in the movement was when, like I said earlier on, they went to Delhi and they camped. They camped and they're still camping, you know, in the cold, in the in the wind, in the rain, whatever. They are sitting there, and sometimes I I I sit and think about it, how amazing it would be because I know a few people have actually gone, who have actually gone and um, gone from England to and they said the vibe there is unbelievable, the atmosphere is is serene. I was watching a um, an interview on Sikh Times and I was, as a Muslim lady, you know, like with a lot of people saying, oh, it's just Seek people. Oh, they're just always causing problems. It was a Muslim lady, and she said, "I was." She's like um, a woman's right activist, and she wears a hijab. So she goes, "As a woman, I don't feel safe in India. India is not safe for women." But she goes to those people. And go, myself included. She said, "To those people who felt like India was never safe, come to these borders, right? Now come to single border, come to Tikri border, um, Ghazi border. Come to these borders where these protests have being held, and tell me you don't feel safe." She goes, "I was one of those people." She said, she admitted on live TV, you know, I was one of those people that said. India is not safe but the scope the magnitude of these events is is unbelievable and um despite you know innocent people are losing their lives this movement is showing more than one thing it's it showed so many things again Punjab has stood up once again um at the forefront of something that is unbelievable the average person doesn't understand you know there was for black lives matter protest people don't understand what these are still protests but the like i said the scope the magnitude people live in there there's food there's education there's shelter there's medicine there's there's everything there's sec- security is in safe a safe like place for people to stay people to live mm-hmm. um these are not ordinary protests that just can i think the word protest doesn't do it justice and sometimes you know the word it's- protest we sort of i went to the protest in london you know i carried a flag walked around for a few hours and come back and i was tired I thought, you know what, I've done a lot today. I felt I felt happy with myself. You know, I feel like I've done a I've done a big thing, but these people are living there. They're living there. And older people, older than me, far older than me, who, you know, some people there who haven't got an arm, haven't got a leg, but they're still there. And I feel like the word protest doesn't do it justice. There needs to be a new word.
0: Just to, just to piggyback off that as well, you said like uh, the, the sort of like nine to five job or yourself as a professional boxer, like th- there is a difference in farming compared to any other job because it, you can't take a break. Do you know what I mean? Your oh. crops aren't gonna stop growing if you go to, to Delhi? And I think that's the important thing that people are sacrificing their livelihoods in the short term, so they don't have to sacrifice it in the long term. Like yeah. Delhi to Punjab to do that march and not just Punjab, but other places in India, everyone's commuting and India is a big, big place. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. it's eight to 10 hours plus journey. Plus, Some people yeah. are doing it um, not even with vehicles. There's, there's plenty of videos where you see people either on uh, on bicycles, even walking there, running, whatever they can to get there and join this movement. Uh, um, perhaps movement's the better way than protest. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah no, and, so, definitely agree yeah, but, with that. Yeah, and no, I mean, farming is a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we know from our musical culture, for example, you know, yeah. how much the music, has been embedded within farming, and actually, uh, you know, that's why uh, there's been so much discontent uh, towards the musical artists and celebrities who have stayed silent, because Mm -hmm. they've made their money off of the farmers, they've made and appropriated the culture of farming, Um, and yet when it came to speaking up for these farmer protest movements, um, they have been silent. And all credit goes to these farmers, you know, the tenacity, the strength with which they have tilled the soil for decades, with which they have fed hundreds of millions of people, they have brought that same energy, they have brought that same passion to standing up for their rights at this moment in time. And it has been a long, slow process for a lot of people, maybe listening to this podcast, you might think all of a sudden it just appeared like that on Rihanna's our timeline <laughs> which we'll get to <laughs> soon know. we'll get to uh, soon <laughs> uh, i'm a big fan of rihanna and i am a big fan she's, <laughs> she's on my playlist on loop <laughs> <laughs> but, um,
0: but as you've alluded the whole... to so, so, they've been there for over 70 days now yeah. you know what i mean it's not so, like obviously rihanna's tweet was maybe 60 plus days in it's almost two months and as india said before people are camping out on the streets during the winter as well so yeah. these two months have been during some of the the harshest and coldest conditions uh, in basically India's sort of um, um, yearly sort of weather cycle. So it isn't it isn't good. And uh, the, the next sort of uh, thing related to the protests that I want to talk about is the, the human rights violations. Yeah. So obviously now that it is becoming more public um, and alluding to there, like Rihanna's tweet um, has made a, a more international scope on, on what's happening. But the amount of... Uh, human rights violations that have occurred. Um, so, I, I seen a stat yesterday, um, which is 204 people, I think, known people have died during this protest. Uh, obviously, there, there might be more because it, there, there might be unknown, but that's just the tip of the iceberg when you see um, the amount of human rights violations that that have happened.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is uh, it's very, very important for us to stress. This is a democratic movement You know democracy does not just happen once every five years at the ballot box democracy is a living breathing engaging experience it's a daily daily effort and the government and its interaction with the citizens that's what actual democracy is this farmers protest movement going back to how these laws were initiated have been a threat to democracy not because of the farmers The farmers are not the threat to democracy here, the government is. The way in which the government enacted these laws and the way in which the government has turned a blind eye to its most important sector and its most important group of citizens, and they have completely ignored it, and that's what's actually the threat to democracy. Interestingly, one of the other key important elements that we should just Allude to here is how India is structured, you know, we are in Britain here, we have our system of government, um, you know, as a Scottish citizen, I have a parliament in Edinburgh, and I have that parliament representing me for some things. And then we also have the Westminster Parliament representing um, the whole country for certain things. Within India, that structure is quite similar, they have, I think, 28 states, each of those states has a government and a parliament. Now. Agriculture and regulation is the job of the state government, the central government and Modi had no role passing these laws. They had absolutely no authority to do it that's what one of the major issues at the very beginning was so a huge part of the initial phase of the protests was actually demonstrating within the states. So, as we heard before, the uh, Punjab farmers, the Haryana farmers and other states, they were interacting with their chief ministers, they were interacting with their local MPs to um, seek a recourse for that within the state system. When it became clear that Modi was not going to respect the constitution of India, when he was not going to respect the state authority, that's when there was the tipping point. That's when the farmer union leaders and the groundswell, the mass group of farmers decided that actually, no, if we want this resolution, it's going to happen in Delhi itself. And that's when that movement took forward that step Um, to really go to the heart of the country, to go to the capital, because it's their capital. That's not Modi's palace. Delhi is not his dominion. It's the people's movement, and it's the people's capital, and it's the people's dominion. And I think that that movement has really brought to light. And it's a big question. It's a big question mark for India now. Um, How are they going to respond? How are they going to respond to this stress, this strain where you've got this government and you've got this prime minister who wants to throw his weight around. And then you've got this big group of citizens who are standing up for themselves. And this is where we come to these human rights violations, which we've seen escalating um, over the last period of weeks. Initially the tactics of the government were really immature. Um, it was just to ignore them and pretend that nothing's <laughs> happening. You know, Modi was basically pretending that they don't exist. Um, and it, all credit goes to those farmers um, and this movement who withstood all of this um, stonewalling, all of this uh, ignorance being directed towards them. You know, it's a huge level of disrespect. Um, there's this saying, that Indian politicians love to bring out, you know, to show how in touch with the people they are. They say a a phrase, Jai Javan and Jai Kassan, which means long live the soldiers and long live the farmers. Every country always salutes its soldiers. The soldiers are protecting the nation, but within India, they regard farmers as being equal to soldiers. That's how much importance they have. But if you're looking at the current Indian government, yeah, are they living up to that?
0: I was going to say it doesn't seem like that right now. Um, cause, yeah, because it, it just isn't, is it? And everyone who is listening who might not be, um, basically following all the South Asian sort of Insta pages that have been covering, uh, this, uh, this basically for the entire two months because there have been a lot of human rights violations from early. It has escalated over time, but um. I remember during like the marches towards Italy, there were already barricades up. There was already water cannons. There was already gas canisters, uh, tear gas canisters and things like that. But obviously it has escalated. Um, in the do you, do you uh, know any more um, like violations and, and and things like that that you've seen?
1: Oh, uh, countless, you know, countless. This, what started off as, as just um, the farmers being unhappy with three laws and they wanted to be repealed has now turned into the world's largest protest and it's become a sort of a laughing stock for the world and to people. for people to see the um, the extent the Indian government will go to is to silence people and those that are not happy with the government. You know, we as Sikhs, unfortunately, we have always known that. But when it comes to like an internal matter of India, you know, the average person, the world doesn't seem to care because we're only a small percentage of the world. We're only we're only quite very small. Um nobody seemed to care. But with this movement, Punjab stood up first and all the other states come together and supported. What's going on is now in the public eye because of because of what's happened, you know, the, the lady, the Nodib God, who is a Dalit woman, you know, she's from a lower caste she's been sexually assaulted and abused and held without um um without genuine reason you know she's been beaten tortured and god forbid raped in prison for standing up for people's rights and now we as like I said, as Sikhs and as Punjabis we've always known this you know since before 84 and after 84 1984 but now the world's seen it. So what started as just a very small, a relatively small thing about three laws has now turned into something that is much bigger, and it cannot go, it will not go unnoticed. Because like we, like like um Deep said earlier, you know Modi government he tried to dismiss it like nothing ever happened. He didn't talk about it. He didn't mention nothing. Nothing that Modi done was in reference to the farmers. You know the White House Capitol got stormed. And he tweeted, "Oh, it's a it's a very bad thing," and whatever else he tweeted. But at the same time, the world's largest protest is going on the outside in his in his um on capital his of his country on his doorstep. But he didn't he didn't care because it was only kind of a thing that was limited to mainly Punjab and a few like Haryana and Uttar Pradesh. But now it's become so big because rightfully so, rightfully so, people are being raped, being abused, being beaten. You know, old people they're calling us terrorists. There was um. Pratap Singh Bajwe, he's a politician. He was saying, you talking to the Sikh people about nationalism. He goes, uh, "He goes, There is a, per- a child from Punjab, at least one a month, draped in a tricolour colour, where he's died serving his country. One a month from Punjab. Yeah. One a month. And you're talking to us about nationalism. Yeah.
0: The tricolour <laughs> being the national flag for P- anyone. It's P- 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 in
1: the Indian flag. So obviously, yeah. when the body comes in the you know, armed forces, when a person yeah. dies, they cover it. And he said, You're talking to us about nationalism. You're talking to us about terrorism.
0: There is a lot of hypocrisy there because, but uh, as you mentioned, there he's tweeting about the capital in America, but then when yeah. it comes to when it, when now the attention's on India, it's uh, it's an internal matter. Um, Definitely. J- just to reel off a few more, um, the, there's been restricted water supply to the protest sites. Uh, I think there's been restricted food supply um, as well. Um, there's the electricity's been turned off where the protest sites are, at, and uh, the internet has been. Been,
1: it's a joke yeah Sorry, which, it's actually it's honestly like it's, it's a laughing matter.
0: yeah it's a which, which matter to assistir. external people who aren't from india or don't know about this would think oh th- like that's weird i didn't even know you could turn off the internet like in western <laughs> country you're never going to experience that no. and yeah. when i was in india a few years ago a similar thing had happened that when there was protest they just turned off the internet to me it was completely alien but to them it's actually a very regular occurrence yeah and yeah. another thing we've mentioned is as journalists so um on republic day at least eight journalists that are known uh, have been arrested and charged um, which comes into the next topic that I would really want to quickly talk about is media coverage because it's very biased okay it's it's, it's uh, what researching this was already a, a troubling task to do because anytime you put anything into google the first results or uh anti-farmers it's it's not an easy thing to research to get all of this so literally i hope everybody today. yeah exactly
1: today.com <laughs>
0: that's yeah. it literally it so hopefully everybody appreciates the research we it because it wasn't very easy <laughs> but um but uh, not just the india's media but also you were on uh Sarandeep was on bbc the other day and you got some um very interesting in quotation marks questioning
2: Yes, uh Um, I think just to reiterate the point um, that you guys have made there about um, media, information, knowledge, this uh, movement would not have been a success without the independent individuals, independent citizen journalists as well, Um, and I think we live in a very unique time in history where we have um, fairly independent social media, it's still a little bit controlled, but the vast, vast majority of our social media platforms like Twitter, Instagram, podcasts like Spotify, um, all of these tools are out with the government's control to a certain extent. And it is, that is the only reason why the, the truth of this movement is able to get out there because those traditional media platforms, particularly within India, many of them are owned and operated by friends of politicians or by big business owners who want to use the media to promote themselves and to influence the politics uh, of that country. Um, So that's a major, major part and parcel of this movement has been the independence of that local grassroots journalism. Um, my, um, you know, recent sort of uh, claim to fame, <laughs> I suppose, mm-hmm. has been that um, rather, uh, you know, strange experience on BBC News. Um, uh, I am a founder of a charity called Sikhs in Scotland. Um, we, we're a community of about maybe 10,000, 15,000 Sikhs across the whole of Scotland. Majority of us are based in Glasgow. Um, and uh, we have, as youth, our young people in our community, uh, we stepped up to kind of create a separate organisation outside of. the the local gurdwaras um, because we wanted to focus on other things and one of the major successes for the last year of our charity was setting up something called the Sikh food bank um, which through the coronavirus pandemic served a hundred thousand meals to those in need not just in the Sikh community but across all communities so that was a major major focus of our work one of the other things that we as a charity started to get involved in was this farmers rights movement because we saw how little attention it was getting. Um, The human rights violations that you guys have covered and narrated are very, very troubling, very, very sinister. These are things that we expect to happen in China, in Russia, Mm -hmm. in North Korea, in certain countries in the Middle East, in certain countries in Africa. These are not tactics that you expect to come from what is labeled a democratic country of India. That's not how a democratic government is supposed to operate, which is why we've never lived through anything like that in our own lifetime here in this country. Um, And when you look on, you know, BBC homepage, BBC News homepage, which is one of the biggest news sources, um, every day I look on it and you see a story about Russia, you see a story about North Korea, you see a story about Myanmar, you see a story about the Middle East, You see a story about america um, you see a story about africa but never ever did i ever see the coverage happening of uh, the farmers protests the farmers movement and the human rights violations so we were approached we got an email through um, a couple of days ago um, from a bbc journalist who had seen a letter online that we had written to the uk government Um, in that letter we had asked the uk government to engage constructively with India um, on an official level um, in any engagements they're going to do about trade talks or anything like that, just to put that statement out there that we would like as a UK government, we would like Indian government to engage constructively and respond peacefully and listen to the people's demands because that is their job. So we put that letter out, BBC approached us and they wrote in an email that we've seen this letter and we'd like you to come on to discuss that letter and the contents of that letter. Yeah. So we were like, this is this is a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, finally our national broadcaster is finally covering a major, major world news topic. Um, so I prepared some lines and some topics and some facts and figures, just like we guys had talked about here, and to go over things. And it was, it was a short interview, it was maybe five or seven minutes, and that's what I was preparing for. Um, and the initial question um, that was put forward to me was, you know, a, a simple introductory question about, um, you know, what's your interest in this as an international community, you know, outside of India, and that was all fine. And then all of a sudden, the tone changed very drastically to some really bizarre questions about, have you been raising money? Have you been sending money? How much money have you raised? Um, We've not fundraised a single penny for the farmers. I wish I had, now, <laughs> you know, um, because I could have told her how much money I'd raised and sent to my family and friends in India to support them. <laughs> but unfortunately, the answer was I've not sent any money. Um, But then I was like, why on earth is she asking this question? Um, you know, we've not publicized anything. I, I'm not aware of any big uh, fundraising going on from the UK or other countries. People must be sending some support themselves. But there's not a major effort. So I was I other I than Carl
0: which which you referenced in, in the yeah. interview. Uh yeah. Yeah. So then I, is I, I then I was
2: like, okay, well maybe I'll try and answer her question. Maybe she's maybe she's you know asking it the wrong way maybe this is what she's talking about so I was like well there's an international aid charity which has a branch in India and they do aid work everywhere they help all peoples and yeah you know there's lots of old members of the community sitting in the streets in the cold weather and they need housing they need water they need tents and uh, they've also given them some massage cheers you know uh, I was still keeping it kind of light-hearted um, and I kind of responded like that and then all of a sudden, the, the, the third question that she brought in started to bring in some really, really disturbing narrative, um, which was a very, very loaded question. Um, and you know I'm, I'm quite loath to even repeat it because I don't want her to get the benefit and I don't want the BBC and the Indian government to get the benefit of us repeating that narrative. But I do think it's important that we should clearly state what they were saying and why they were saying it. So she asked a question about the so-called critics who say that the movement is um being influenced by Pakistan by the Pakistan government to support terrorists um and what she really meant by that was sikh terrorists because only sikhs can be terrorists apparently um and um whether we had influenced and infiltrated the movement um and i was and wasn't surprised i was I wasn't expecting the question, but I was prepared for it to be asked, because I knew what I needed to say to that to that argument. The Indian government has tried everything to delegitimize their own citizens, and they've used every trick under the book. And one of those things they've tried to use is to me- do media manipulation, where they come up with fake news, fake stories, and they plant it in their friendly websites and and present it as independent news. And this is a very, very lazy form of journalism where they just repeat what the government says.
0: But it happens all over the world as well. So like it, it during the Trump election, we've seen it where it's basically divide and conquer. It's it's yes. the oldest trick in the book. You yeah. know what I mean? You create uh two camps of people and make them fight, which is what's happening in India now. We've seen it during Brexit, we've seen it during Trump, uh Trump's election, we've seen it pretty much repeating over and over and over again. The the example if if you don't want to think about farmers, yeah. Um let's go to Canada and say that they're gonna change trucking laws, yeah, for truck drivers. And then all the truck drivers protest. What what the what the majority ethnic minority groups that are going to be in there are probably going to be darker skin tone. It would be very easier for Canadian media to basically call these people uh, terrorists or troublemakers or anything, which we're already seeing in uh, in India. But it's basically just because the majority of that workforce is a specific minority group. Do you know what I mean? It's a very easy thing for them. Uh, that environment to become very toxic and divisive and then anybody who isn't part of that ethnic minority group then fights against them, which is exactly what's happening in in, in India right
2: now. Yeah. So I had to when I got when I got posed that question I kind of had to think on my feet there because you know we didn't have the luxury of time you know we've had a really really thorough discussion here and covered so much um and we've you know still not gone through loads of different details um almost an hour we've been talking here and I had to uh, you know try and respond within a very very short space of interview when she dropped this you know loaded question in there and and um she, you know, When I called her out on it, I said, you know, I'm really concerned that you're um, spouting this false propaganda. She didn't just try to say, oh, this is not propaganda. I'm just asking you a question. But when you ask somebody a question, you've, you've researched that question. You have based that on some kind of evidence. And what is the evidence for you to have said that? that's why I'm calling it propaganda because the question you're asking is trying to introduce an idea which is not true which does not exist and I thought about very quickly how could I to the viewers who listen to that because automatically when somebody hears terrorists everyone gets a bit scared so I was like I need to try and neutralize that whole argument. So then I brought in, thankfully, you know, we've had such amazing international support for this movement. And I don't know whether, you know, it's just just the organic efforts of 1000s and 1000s and millions of people promoting and supporting these farmers that have got these engaged um, media celebrities and social celebrities um, involved. But I was like, everyone knows who Rihanna is, and everyone knows who Greta Thunberg is. and their reputations are are clearly established in the media everybody knows who they are um, so i was like yeah well let, let's bring them into it and um you know i, I sw- switched the question around to her and i was saying well is rihanna also a terrorist uh, yeah. is greta thunberg also a terrorist if they have also voiced their support for the farmers are they also part of this so-called global conspiracy which you claim to be um an issue Uh, in your question Um, and there was no response to that and I think that was um, something which I feel very fortunate I was able to think up in in time uh, because sometimes in the heat of the moment you get a bit frozen Um, but I was able to introduce that and I think that helped to really just neuter that point there because this is a global movement and what she kept trying to do was try to isolate us and as you say divide us up into this small a troublesome band of Sikhs causing trouble again Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's quite easy to blame us because of how we look and because we're confident and because we stand up for ourselves. But this is actually a global movement. And ironically, it's not the Indian celebrities that have stood up for their fans. It's not the Indian filmmakers or the Indian cricketers or the Indian musicians who are standing up for the people that have lived uh, for the past decade watching their sport listening to their music going to the cinema to watch their films it's people from the other side of the world who have analyzed the situation and have identified that this is a real human rights cause and a real human rights movement and i think we've got a lot to be thankful for but we've also got to thank ourselves and be proud of ourselves And the farmers have also got to be proud of themselves as well for having that confidence and that assurance in themselves to be able to project their voice.
0: 100%. I I couldn't agree more. Uh, A couple of points there. I just want to say that during that BBC interview, I think you were very articulate and kept your cool really well. uh, Because as you say, when you're getting bombarded by loaded questions, it's probably easy to lose Iraq, which you didn't. And thankfully so, because then you're you're a good um, sort of figurehead, I guess. Or people will perceive... Um, what you said to be accurate, if that makes sense. If you lost your rag, then it sort of just feeds into, into her sort of uh, messaging. Um, and then secondly is the the thing where, where we've said it throughout this podcast numerous amounts of times, it's not a religious is- issue. Yeah. There are numerous religions in India who are uh, different religions who are farmers and it's got, it's got nothing to do with religion. It's more about just farming law. Um, and then lastly, the point that you made with the Indian actors and celebrities, um, The thing that I want to say on that topic is basically just going forward to anybody who's listening, uh, who's appalled at people not speaking out, just put your money where your mouth is. Do you know what I mean? Like when the next time you go into a a movie's released or a song's released or a show is coming out, just remember what side you support. Um uh, uh, and that's the the most effective way to sort of implement your your passion for this subject. Mm -hmm. Um I, th- I think we've covered basically the majority of the, the big topics there. Uh, so, again, I want to thank both of you for your time. Anybody who is listening, if you could um, share this podcast so more people uh, can be sort of uh, educated, I guess, on the topic, uh, just share anything to do with the farmers' protest so that you're raising awareness. Um, I will leave both uh, Inder's and Shandip's, um links and things in the description and um again it's a, a bit of a different podcast to normal but i think it would be it it would be wrong not just to, to speak up about the topic so we just had to and if it helps anybody learn a tiny bit more then it, it's job well done
1: Man, honestly this podcast helped me massively i've learned so much from just listening to Sharon deep myself <laughs> um it is actually give me a very um a very deeper insight um on the law on the law side of it you know you're very knowledgeable um and when he tell me he was coming around yeah i was like you know what that's a really good idea with wicked man thank you appreciate it no worries. thank you very much
0: no worries it's my pleasure um and uh, just want to reiterate that the reason that we've emphasized everything for western uh comparisons and spoke the majority of this in english is because indians and south asians pretty much know what the crack is at the moment they know what's going on in india share this to your non-south asian friends to raise uh, awareness in different communities uh, of what's happening out there. Um, But again, thank you very much for listening. And uh, uh, hopefully this is a a tiny bit of um, uh, insight into what's happening.